from the Archives of Disease in Childhood. I'm Harry Bomer. I'm a paediatrician. I've come up this morning from Plymouth, down in Devon. Recently, I've been looking at the asthma updates from both the States and the UK. I'm a general paediatrician. I do see children with asthma, but it's not my specialty. So I speak very much from a generalist's perspective. I'm Ian Balfour-Lynn. I'm a consultant in respiratory paediatric medicine at Royal Brobden Hospital, where I have mostly a tertiary practice, referrals from general paediatricians of asthmatic children doing badly. I also work at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, where it's more of a secondary practice and GP referrals, so I do see the full spectrum. I wasn't involved in writing any of the guidelines, but I was one of the specialist reviewers for the British thoracic one. The two guidelines that we're discussing, one of them comes from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute of the NIH. The other one is the British Thoracic Society and Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network guideline on the management of asthma. Well, Ian, we've both had a chance to look at these guidelines and I think one of the issues about reviewing this is to really get an idea of what has actually changed and that I think is difficult to get just at a glance at either of these guidelines. So we need to just go through and see what we think is important I think. The first of these really was the question of when do you add in beta agonists if you've got a child on inhaled steroids and what about the evidence of sudden death, particularly as I think it comes from adults, and what should we do about that? The issue of when you start them isn't particularly new from the previous version. And the previous version, which was probably the 2005, was suggesting that you use the long-acting beta agonist at a lower inhaled steroid dose than previously. It used to be that you would get up to really quite a high dose before you introduced them and then they suggested introducing them at a lower steroid dose. And I think that practice has continued, and certainly because of concerns over safety of inhaled steroids over the last few years, my personal practice is to introduce the, you know, the salmitrol or uh, formotrol at a lower steroid dose than I would have done before, rather than just upping the dose of steroids because you haven't got uh, particularly good control. It also begs the question of, you know, if you're going to add in long-acting beta agonists, how long do you give it before you decide whether that's helped? Because these days, really, there are other alternatives to the long-acting beta agonists. Yes, I mean, I think I would probably give it a couple of months, assuming the child, by chance, didn't happen to have a bad cold and an exacerbation at that time, which might make you think they're not working. I still think that they are the icing on the cake, really, that quite often when control's not bad with steroids but not quite right, you add in these class of drugs and suddenly you really get a much better control. And I'm actually a big fan of their use. Now, obviously, the issue of their safety came in from mostly post-marketing surveillance studies of huge numbers, and they were almost all adults, although I think probably would have involved some adolescent age groups as well. And there was a concern of increased number of severe exacerbations and death. And the main problem seemed to be that a sizable proportion were taking salmitrol, I think it was particularly, without taking any inhaled steroids. And that's something that everyone has been saying for ages you shouldn't do. And so I don't know why these patients, which were principally in the States, I think, as well, were doing that. The uh, long-acting beta agonists will provide symptomatic relief without affecting the underlying 
inflammation, which is what the steroids are doing. And so you're really just masking, perhaps worsening asthma state. The American guidelines are quite good here in that they slap a little book in the sense that they have pages on this issue. It's still a bit inconclusive from what they say, but my impression is that in childhood this is not a problem and it would not deter me from using them. So the key message really is to see them as an add-on rather than a primary treatment. And I guess the other way around, when you're going down, to withdraw them first before withdrawing inhaled steroids. Yes, the, the thing I would do is reduce the steroids, and then when I get to a lowish level, that's when I would withdraw the uh, long-acting beta agonist. So, in a way, this begs the other question, which is very much part of the updates, which is the safety of inhaled steroids in children, particularly very young children, but perhaps children of all ages. This has been a difficult issue, actually, because what was happening was gradually people were using higher and higher doses of inhaled steroids, certainly out of the licensed dose, but then, as you know, in paediatrics, most drugs are out of license or off license. And I think people were giving doses that were higher than they probably should have done. And then there suddenly were a swathe of case reports, some single cases, some, you know, half a dozen cases, of significant steroid-related side effects, um, adrenal crises, hypoglycemia, and in one or two cases, actual death. And clearly that sent an alarm around. The majority of the cases were on fluticasone, but not all. And I think the feeling was not that it was specifically the fault of that drug, and I might add here that I have absolutely no conflict of interest here, but that it was, that it was that drug that was tending to be used in higher doses. People tend to be using beclomethazone or budesonide, but then if things were going badly and they needed a higher dose, tended to switch to chartifluticasone because it was more potent. And I suspect that was one of the issues, although fluticasone does hang around a bit longer because it's quite lipophilic. So I think the message there was, firstly, some of those children didn't actually have asthma in the first place. And I think this was critical. If you have an airway that is not inflamed, you will absorb the inhaled steroid really more readily than if you've got thickened mucosa and, and mucus there. And I think that was part of the problem, which is they shouldn't have been on the steroids in the first place, particularly such a high dose. Some of those cases also had other problems, such as you know, there were one or two endocrine problems and other things. The message, however, came out that you have to be very careful about high doses of inhaled steroids. If you look at the curve of risk and benefit, you get a, a big increase in benefit when you start to go up on an inhaled steroid dose at the lower doses. But once you get to the higher doses, the extra benefit you get sort of flattens out, whereas the extra side effect part of the curve exponentially goes up. So at the higher doses, if, for example, you're using 250 micrograms twice daily of fluticasone, you're not going to get a huge extra benefit on 500 twice daily, whereas you will definitely have a higher risk at that sort of dose. I think it'd be useful, actually, to think about what doses people like me, the general paediatrician, should be happy to be using, recognising that I would expect to monitor growth and see the child regularly if I was using relatively high doses. If we talk about doses, it's easiest to stick to the sort of uh, budesonide, beclomethazone dose range. If we talk about 400 per day, I call that a medium range, above which that child needs, uh, you know, maybe more referral thinking, why is this child not doing well? And whatever way you look at it, the biggest reason that children don't do well on their inhaled steroids is because they don't take them. So that's the first thing. 
But I think above 400 micrograms a day, one should be really re-evaluating and reassessing that child. Uh, Ian, what, what about the growth, though? I mean, I used to think that this was a, an effective way of monitoring children for systemic side effects. Um, what do you feel about that? There is still some use in it, because clearly if a child is not growing well, you know you need to think about that. Um, it, it seems to me, from my experience that actually I very rarely see growth impairment with inhaled steroids but it's idiosyncratic it, when I see it it happens at relatively modest doses I think the thing with growth is certainly you're right it is idiosyncratic we have to monitor it carefully but what's disappointing is the more recent evidence that shows that some of the children who are having uh, the significant adrenal problems were growing perfectly fine so you can't just assume all is well because the growth is normal and I think that is a worry. And of course you then are left with what do you do? And there's been a lot of stuff about synaxin testing and should you do a short one or a long one and are you going to miss it and, and the variability as well. So I suspect we don't actually have a test currently that is of, of any use, which is why we go back to saying you use the lowest dose of inhaled steroids that you can to gain control. I have been surprised occasionally by the dose of inhaled steroids used in primary care. I couldn't agree more actually and that is very scary to me. I had a patient recently who I had on 50 micrograms twice daily fluticasone and when they came back the GP had given them 250 twice daily and it wasn't a prescribing error. The GP had said to the mother no this is the dose you need and I was horrified and uh, wrote something in the letter as you can imagine. Politely of course. Now Ian I'm going to need some help with this pronunciation here, omalizumab. Is that a good pronunciation or a bad one? No, I think, that, I think omalizumab is how it's known as. The trade name is Zolair, which is spelled X-O-L-A-I-R, but that's not much better anyway. It is an anti-IgE monoclonal antibody, the idea being it mops up the free serum IgE. Now, that all sounds great, but the problem is that it's a two to four weekly subcutaneous injection. So the sort of children I would consider using it on are the really severe asthmatics who are probably already on oral steroids and will do anything we can to get off those steroids, particularly if they're having uh, side effects. And the problem is the IgE's got to be less than 700 for it to be effective. And the sort of children I'm talking about with these problems have IgE's ranging over 1,000 to 2,000 quite often. So... It's a tricky issue. It's supposedly safe. I mean, it's quite odd, the, the wording in the UK guidelines, because it says, apart from local reactions, there appear to be no major safety issues. Then the next paragraph is devoted to anaphylaxis, which sounds to me like a pretty major safety issue. And I still think it's going to be used for the occasional severe, severe asthmatic um, who is highly atopic. And then there may be some benefit. Why don't we turn to house dust mite precautions? Now, it seems to me... It's fascinating when you get two guidelines that both purport to be evidence-based and they come to diametrically opposite conclusions. And basically, the Americans think it's a good thing and uh, the English um, think it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is something where I was quite surprised, actually, that there's been quite a lot of different randomised controlled trials that are put together in a Cochrane review. Uh, which seems to me to come out firmly against uh, benefit. What, what's your view on this? Well, I think I, I'd have to sort of disagree with you when you said a bad thing. I don't think anybody's saying that house dust mite prevention is bad for you. 
it's just difficult to prove, again, in a trial, that it's of great benefit. But clearly, if a child is highly house dust mite allergic with a RAS test of, say, over 100, which we get occasionally, remembering a normal one is less than 0.35, then I think one is duty-bound to suggest, and most of the parents would have done it anyway, um, some simple house dust mite measures, such as mattress covers, using the right sort of pillow, pillow case. It made me laugh when after years of everybody saying, oh, you must have uh, polyester, you know, foam-filled pillows, everyone suddenly completely reversed that, the allergists, and yes, I am having a go at allergists, and suddenly said, oh, no, now you have to have the other sort. And the reason for that is to do with the size of the mesh. So because um, if you have a, a pillow with feathers in it, the little bits will stick out into your neck, you have to have a very fine mesh um, around those feathers to keep them in place, whereas if it's a foam pillowcase, the mesh is much wider. And I've seen photographs of the little house dust mites crawling out the big holes in the polyester um, foam pillowcases. So there's an example where we were clearly saying the wrong thing to people, but um, I think avoiding house dust mites is not a bad thing. Unfortunately, it's never been proved to be of great benefit, and that's because asthma is a whole complex multi-system uh, problem, as is its, its management, really. And I certainly don't go around telling parents to, you know, take out carpets and curtains and put in wooden floors and remove all the teddies. I do suggest that children don't have, you know, 20 teddy bears around their heads at night, and if they have a favourite one, you can put it in the freezer every few weeks or so overnight and that will kill off all the house dust mite and I think that's sensible um, as is certain you know high temperature washing. I'm not sure why the Americans are so incredibly keen compared to the Brits. The Brits have gone by the Cochrane Review. Yes actually this Cochrane Review said that not only is there no evidence of benefit from existing studies but the strength of evidence is so strong that they think it is very unlikely that future RCTs would change that view. The only thing I would say is that some parents might think it's a bad idea to do some of the more arduous duties associated with house dust mite precautions if they knew that the evidence for benefit was generally lacking. No, I think that's reasonable. I, I think that another sensible precaution is hoovering. You know, you need a good hoover and you shouldn't hoover with a child in the house. But I think it depends on the individual. If a parent says to me, and I have heard this, they say, I, whenever I do the hoovering, you know, he sneezes or he starts to cough a bit, well, clearly it should be done in the day when the child's at school. Ian, I think we've um, gone through the main issues that I'd picked out as being important developments in asthma management. Are there any others you've identified that you think we should be focusing on? With these 2007 guidelines, I don't think there's anything startlingly new. I think the, the big thing is the use of the long-acting beta agonists and their safety and the increasing concern over high doses of inhaled steroids. I don't, plus, obviously, we've mentioned amalizumab as the only really sort of new medication. From the archives of disease in childhood.